The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Let's talk about fine. The Sharon, the NEA is a loser. Yeah, it accounts for a penny out of our paycheck, but he gets to hit you with it anytime he wants. It doesn't cost money, it costs votes, it costs airtime and column inches. You know why people don't like liberals? Because they lose. If liberals are so fucking smart, how come they lose so goddamn always? Hey. And with a straight face, you're gonna tell students that America is so star-spangled awesome that we're the only ones in the world who have freedom? Canada has freedom. Japan has freedom. The UK, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Australia, Belgium has freedom. So 207 sovereign states in the world, like 180 of them have freedom. All right. And yeah, you, uh, sorority girl, just in case you accidentally wander into a voting booth one day, there's some things you should know. And one of them is, there is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the f you're talking about. Oftentimes in stories, there appears a character or characters that exist simply to deliver the opinions of the author of the work. This character is known as an author avatar, and may or may not be an idealized version of the author. What's not in dispute is that the character is basically the author. That speech that we just heard from the first episode of HBO's Newsroom is basically Aaron Sorkin channeling himself through Will McAvoy, played by Jeff Daniels. Sorkin is quite fond of pontificating his opinions through his characters with varying degrees of sympathy. One writer, whose heroes also reflected his politics, was Tom Clancy, who passed away on October 1st, 2013. His novels have led to feature films, TV movies, and video games. Perhaps his most famous character is Jack Ryan, a CIA analyst whose adventures in world geopolitics lead him up the ranks in American government and eventually the presidency of the United States. On this episode of Arts Review and Commentary, I'm going to go over the various works of a man whose respect and admiration for the United States military and intelligence forces have garnered praise and honors from those sectors of American government. Also giving their opinion on Tom Clancy's contribution to the video game world are my Realm Network colleagues Adam Sharrock and Asad Syed from the Gaming Marathon. Later on, I'll also give my review and commentary on the new space thriller, Gravity. This is Ark. God bless television. To the movies. To good movies. To every possible kind. I am the danger. I am the one who knocks. Is that a hair gel? <coughs> Loud noises! There's no crying in baseball! That's not even a word! Game over, man. Game over. I'll be back. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! These are their stories. From now on, I order you watch more television than ever before. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to another episode of Arts Review and Commentary. My name is Omar Latiri, and thank you all so much for joining me. I've been receiving good feedback so far, and all I can say is that I hope to keep making it better each and every week. If you're enjoying this as much as I am, 
Please help me out by spreading the word online and in person. Subscribing to this podcast in iTunes and leaving a five-star review is another great way to help spread word of this show. And just like leaving a birthday greeting on Facebook, the payoff for the benefactor is a hundred times more rewarding than the effort put in. From the best-selling novel by Tom Clancy, from the director of Die Hard. Give this man a chance. My orders are specific. Battle stations. Sean Connery, Alec Baldwin, James Earl Jones, Scott Glenn, Sam Neill. The Hunt for Red October. Like many people my age, my first experience with Tom Clancy was watching The Hunt for Red October in movie theaters in the spring of 1990. I was a freshman in high school at the time and not very familiar with any of the cast in the movie, save for James Earl Jones, whom I'd seen as Thulsa Doom in Conan the Barbarian, and of course, the voice of Darth Vader. It was my first Sean Connery movie, my first Alec Baldwin movie, my first submarine movie. Everything about the movie hit the right notes. The acting, the casting, the writing, the action. But what struck me most was the clarity of the storytelling and the characterization. Every character was treated with the utmost respect given their role in the story, with the possible exception of the villainous KGB spy and the captain of the Kanavalov. This movie was the first that I'd seen that showed how the various sections within the United States government worked to achieve their ends, and that real power lied not with military strength, but with careful analysis. Sir, the moment that sub went silent and I thought I heard some singing, I heard something in the background, real faint. And then, after all those subs took off, I caught it again and I managed to get it on tape. I washed it through the computer a few times and I was able to isolate this sound. When I asked the computer to identify it, what I got was magma displacement. See, sir, the SAP's software was originally written to look for seismic events. And I think when it gets confused, it kind of runs home to Momo. <laughs> I'm not following you, Georgie. Sir, I'm sorry. L- listen to it at ten times speed. Now that's got to be man-made, Captain. Captain, you may think I'm crazy, but I'll bet that magma displacement was actually some new Russian sub, and it's headed for the Iceland coast. Have I got this straight, Jonesy? A $40 million computer tells you you're chasing an earthquake, but you don't believe it, and you come up with this on your own. Yes, sir. Including all the navigation there. I've got all the Jones, you sold me. I saw that movie with my mother, who at the time worked for the army as a civilian physician. That scene where Petty Officer Jones shows Captain Mancuso his findings is one of my mother's favorites, because it demonstrated her value for not only brains, but also for the courage to stick up for your convictions with the right evidence. Those are values that I'd come to share, and they came from that scene in The Hunt for Red October. Unfortunately, Red October's next two film sequels weren't as fun as their predecessor. The recasting of Harrison Ford as Jack Ryan was a disappointment for me, as I had grown to really enjoy Alec Baldwin's layered performance. Ford 
glowered and glared as Jack Ryan, and the big picture of world geopolitics was swapped for a more personal revenge story in Patriot Games and a demonstration of office politics in clear and present danger. I still enjoyed watching them, but they were definitely inferior to The Hunt for Red October, and I wouldn't experience anything related to Tom Clancy again until five years later when I read Red Storm Rising. It was 1999, and the Cold War had been over for nearly a decade. My go-to author at the time was Michael Crichton, and I'd pretty much exhausted his repertoire at that point. I don't know why I decided to read Red Storm Rising. I knew it didn't have anything to do with Jack Ryan, but I guess I just wanted something to read. You see, despite my enjoyment of the Jack Ryan movies, I hadn't read any of Clancy's original novels, but I knew that his books were always on the bestsellers lists, and I figured it was time to see what all the fuss was about. Red Storm Rising was an incredible read. It was the longest book I had read at the time, and I was worried that I wouldn't be able to grasp the complexity of the story. It was a testament to Clancy's skill as an author to be able to come up with dozens of unique characters and weave them in and out of disparate storylines taking place all over the world. Yes, the Cold War was over, and the novel felt more like historical fiction at the time than anything current, but reading about a world war fought between the Soviets and NATO wasn't any less exciting because of that. Joey, you are going to love this guy. Gandalf is like the party wizard. Well, wh why do you call him Gandalf? Gandalf the wizard. <laughs> Hello, didn't you read Lord of the Rings in high school? <laughs> no, I had sex in high school. In August of 2001, in preparation for the upcoming Lord of the Rings movie, I decided to read Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, you heard me right. Not reread, read. As in for the first time. Shocker, I know. It took me forever to get through it. And while I've come to love the movies as among my favorites of all time, my experience reading Fellowship is best summarized by this synopsis from Randall in Clerks 2. Those f***ing Hobbit movies were boring as hell. All it was was a bunch of people walking. Three movies of people walking to a f***ing volcano. I had finished reading Fellowship of the Ring at a family friend's home, and I was desperate for something to read that would cleanse my brain of chapters dedicated to walking and singing and eating and poems and elvish. My eyes caught a paperback version of Clear and Present Danger, and I decided to give it a read. I was 50 pages in when I realized I was 50 pages in. Clancy had done something that Tolkien didn't, and that was to make me care. Turns out the book actually didn't belong to that family friend. It was left there by accident nearly a decade before. I got to keep the book, and after finishing it, I decided to start the Jack Ryan stories from the beginning in order of publication. Now, I'm a pretty liberal guy, politically and socially, but I've always prided myself on an ability to understand all viewpoints, and as I went through Clancy's novels one after the other, I got a good look inside the politically conservative mind. I came to appreciate the nuances of right-wing ideology, but as I finished each novel, I noticed something disturbing. Clancy seemed to be stuck in the 1980s. The antagonists in each novel ranged from the Japanese to the Iranians, but it was the Russians that Clancy seemed to have the most fondness for writing. I could tell that Clancy had done plenty of research, but 
there was a lack of understanding, except for the Russians. It's as if he read a lot of books about different cultures, but he never actually took the time to get to know members of those cultures. And when it came to writing about politics he didn't agree with, he went off the deep end. That didn't necessarily mean that the books were unenjoyable. Far from it. For example, the main villains in the novel Rainbow Six are eco-terrorists who, fed up with the industrialization and perceived state of the planet, engineer a bioweapon to wipe out most of humanity so that the Earth can heal. It's the ultimate take that, hippies, and it would be more hilarious if the novel was satirical. But no, Clancy really hated liberal tree huggers, and his animosity is evident when the international special ops team Rainbow Six captures the eco-terrorists and lets them go free in the Amazon with no survival gear. But it was when I started Red Rabbit that I realized that Tom Clancy was truly living in the past. Instead of writing about post-Cold War politics, Red Rabbit was a story that took place in the 80s about a Soviet plot to assassinate the Pope. It was a period piece, and I didn't want to read about Jack Ryan's old adventures. I wanted something new, something contemporary, and Red Rabbit was the exact opposite. Its existence was everything that I consider antithetical to progress. Prequels are supposed to give new insight into characters, and Red Rabbit failed to deliver even that. His next novel, The Teeth of the Tiger, was his first novel about a post-9-11 world, and Clancy's elementary assumptions about Islam and terrorism made the book boring and disappointingly unsatisfying, and I haven't read another Clancy novel since. I may read his novels published after Teeth of the Tiger, but I can't say that I'm excited about them, nor can I say I'm excited about the new Jack Ryan movie coming out this Christmas. After Alec Baldwin, Harrison Ford, and Ben Affleck, the newest actor to portray Jack Ryan will be Star Trek's Chris Pine. The trailer for Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit looks exciting enough, but that's just the thing. The strength of the character of Jack Ryan came from his intellect and his analytical skills, not his physicality. Jack Ryan isn't Jason Bourne, nor should he be. Tom Clancy made a character who at one time exemplified the American dream. A man whose business savvy made him rich, whose intelligence made him valued, and whose patriotism made him appreciated. That's the Jack Ryan that I enjoyed reading. And that's the Tom Clancy that I'll remember. When we come back, my Realm colleagues Adam Chirac and Asad Syed give their take on Tom Clancy's contribution to the video game world, plus my review and commentary on the biggest movies out now, Captain Phillips and Gravity. It's the Buzz Burbank Interview. My next guest has been called fearless by a handful of critics and commentators. I met Bob Seska when he was an intern for the legendary Don and Mike show. Interesting people. Live from Hawaii, where if I understand the time difference, Bob, it's actually yesterday. <laughs> Aloha, my friend. Interesting topic. What's the first question I ask my liberal commentator friend? The question can only be, why do you hate America? <laughs> I get that question a lot. And strangely enough, these days I've been getting it from both sides. The Buzz Burbank interview available at buzzburbank.com and it's just 99 cents but get a subscription this series is good <laughs> i became stretch cunningham on b104 i'm sorry well at least they didn't name you buzz <laughs> <laughs> i know 
Tom Clancy's popularity extended into the video game world. Here to offer their insights are Adam Shirok and Asad Syed from the Realm Network podcast, The Gaming Marathon. A lot of people don't realize that Tom Clancy had a little more to do to, with gaming than simply just slapping his name on a lot of franchises. I mean, you see the insignia on a lot of um, games such as Splinter Cell, Ghost Recon, End War, and probably the one that he's most famous for, Rainbow Six. That wasn't simply just a name. He actually was involved in the development of uh, Rainbow Six and founded the company that started Rainbow Six, Red Storm Entertainment. I think that's very impressive and a testament to uh, what he did for the world of gaming. What do you think, Usted? Well, yeah, I mean, Rainbow Six was one of my favorite games when I was a kid. I just, I remember it really blew my mind when I just, it really was really tactical and hard as hell. It really made you think. And I remember it made me really interested in Tom Clancy's books. You know, a lot of the first-person shooters of that time I remember GoldenEye was pretty big, Doom, Quake, you know, all those were kind of high-octane arcade shooters. But yeah. Tom Clancy and Red Storm Entertainment really brought a new element with the tactical uh, element. Moving slow, using gadgets, marking your, your uh, enemies, thinking before you shoot. And that was something that was revolutionary at the time. And, oh, yeah. and Tom Clancy, and I didn't know this until recently, Tom Clancy actually founded Red Storm Entertainment, which eventually evolved into Ubisoft. Ubisoft took over the development of all Tom Clancy-branded titles. But I think that's pretty amazing that not only was he just a brilliant author, I mean, if you've read some of his books like The Hunt for Red Oct October, um, The Sum of All Fears, and of course the Rainbow Six book, the guy not only knew military intelligence and how to get that into a book, but also to put that into a video game and have a good, real visual representation and an interactive element when it comes to this form of media. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really brought first-person shooters to a more legit light. Yeah, totally. I think it really started the whole trend of military tactical shooters. And um, still, I mean, it's like those are pretty much the most popular shooter around today, like Call of Duty, for instance. Even though, obviously, the gameplay is nothing alike, the Tom Clancy lineage has definitely left its mark. Absolutely. And looking back on some of the other games that have been released under the Tom Clancy banner, it's not all just shooters. I mean, there's Splinter Cell, which is a stealth action game. There's, uh, you know, the End War game, which was real-time strategy. The Tom Clancy brand is very famous, and his contributions to the gaming industry won't go unnoticed. He, you know, did a lot for you know, tactical military shoes, and just the military genre in general. It was supposed to be easy. I take him, ransom, nobody can have it. There's got to be something other than kidnapping people. Maybe in America. Maybe in America. Tom Hanks may have been the lead actor in Captain Phillips, but the star of the movie was the United States Navy. While Battleship was a cornball cheese fest that made the Navy look like fun and badass, Captain Phillips made the Navy look serious and professional and badass. The movie itself is sharply directed and scripted, taking the time to note the similar responsibilities of the three captains featured in the movie. Captain Phillips of the Maersk, Alabama, the captain of the pirate crew, and the captain of the Navy destroyer USS Bainbridge. Three and a half stars out of five, worth seeing, but not necessarily in the theater. Now, let's get to the movie you do have to see in the theater. Five out of five stars for Gravity. Explorer, this is Houston. Go ahead, Houston. Mission abort. Repeat. Mission abort. 
Explorer, this is Kowalski confirming visual contact with debris. Debris is from a BSC sat. Pepco! Repeat. I have a Doctor Stone requesting faster transport. We have to go, we have to go, go, go! Kennedy reports meteorological conditions. Go, go. Houston, Explorer, copy. Explorer, Doctor Stone requesting faster transport to Bay Area. Explorer, do you copy? Explorer, permission to retrieve Doctor Stone. Your go, Kowalski. A movie with a good story is something that should be able to translate in different formats. If a movie's good enough, it won't matter if you see it in black and white, color, widescreen, IMAX, 3D, in a theater, or at home. But there are many cases where the format adds so much to the viewing experience that you're denying yourself the full experience of a movie if you don't watch it in that particular format. Color helps make The Wizard of Oz and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as engaging as they are. DTS Surround Sound helped make Jurassic Park one of the funnest movie-going experiences in my life. And now, with the advent of quality 3D, certain movies are able to add another dimension to good storytelling. Gravity is one of those movies. <laughs> Even on the surface, a movie about what could happen when you're marooned in space would be thrilling enough, but director Alfonso Cuaron explores the different meanings of the word gravity in this film. Gravity could mean the literal force that all objects possess on a physical level, but it can also mean the severity of a given situation. Here, the story is about learning simultaneously to embrace gravity and learning to let go. Not since Life of Pi has a movie used 3D so well to advance its storytelling, and indeed, Gravity's story shares many thematic similarities to Life of Pi, isolation, perseverance, and making the best out of tragedy. But gravity takes place in an environment unfamiliar to all but a certain group of privileged few and shows us just how terrifying space can be. Those involved with the making of this film did a stellar job. Cuaron knows that in order to make the tense moments matter, a storyteller has to space out tension with breaks to let an audience catch their breath and reassess. George Clooney is the only actor who could play a cocksure but calm and determined astronaut. But the real star of this movie is Sandra Bullock, whose performance in this movie deserves to be recognized by the Academy. This is the best movie I've seen this year. That's it for this episode of Arts Review and Commentary. Be sure to catch the next Arc episode when I'll talk about the world of reboots. Like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash arcreviews. Follow the show on Twitter at arcreviews. And you can email me at artsreviewandcommentary at gmail.com. My name is Omar Latiri, and this is Arc. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network. Thank you.